0: The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau Episode 4 Frozen in Suburbia As we headed home, the three of us were very quiet and subdued, lost in our own thoughts. Lysuk and Lysum told me that they were expecting to be questioned and granted asylum all in one day. Hence, they had made the provision in those Air China flight bags, together with the documents of declaration. I, on the other hand, was pondering the looming domestic arrangements. I felt as if I was in an impending arranged marriage, and anxious about the match. How would these strangers and I cope with one another in a little suburban house in Southfields? And how would I defend them against ruthless Chinese authorities if they turned up on my doorstep? We get out of South Hughes tube station and stand on Wimbledon Park Road. I tell them I must go off and get some food and provisions. In their mumbled reply, I see that they are scared to be out in broad daylight, facing the prospect of the very long, straight, open road that they must walk down to get back inside the house. So we do the brisk walk back home together, and they breathe a sigh of relief as we enter the front door. Since no Chinese would dream of skipping a meal, I tell them I'll now drive round the block to the supermarket so that we can have something to go with our noodles for lunch. I tell them to just make themselves at home. Up to this point, I've been helping with the defection of two diplomats. But now here I am shopping for groceries for two strangers who will be living with me. I have no idea what they prefer to eat nor what personal daily necessities they might need that they do not already have in their big red suitcase. I stand motionless in the Isle of Sainsbury's. I do not want to go home. The overwhelming fuss that welcomed me at the door when I returned with my groceries set the tone for the rest of the week. Whenever I did something as mundane as opening my front door, they would sing out For which the literal translation is, You're back! They would rush forward to close the door for me even before I had taken my shoes off. That's a very common Chinese domestic habit for not bringing the dirt of the outside indoors. They would then carry all the grocery bags into the kitchen and would start to unpack what I follow empty-handed behind. Rather than feel grateful, I felt my independence being obliterated. I just stood there and watched two Chinese diplomats putting my groceries into places where they did not belong. I took a glass of water from the tap and they stared and gasped while expressing their genuine abhorrence as such an unwise and unhygienic habit. As I drank the glass, I saw them shaking their heads in mock despair at my eccentricity. I set about preparing for the soup noodles with shrimp and vegetables for our simple lunch. Lai started doing what comes naturally to a housewife of that generation, taking over in the kitchen. Her husband, meanwhile, was happy to be laying the table deep in thought. She asked without any hesitation where the ingredients and sources were kept. She told me that she was responsible for the food supplies at the Maidervale Embassy building, often making trips to London's Chinatown in Soho, accompanied by the embassy's chauffeur. Being from Shanghai, she is like a lot of northern Chinese able to partake huge quantities of searing hot ingredients that would send a normal person to the hospital's throat and mouth clinic. Fortunately, I had a jar of chilli sauce for her separate consumption. We ate in silence, both she and I having taken off our spectacles as the steam of the hot noodles fogged our lenses. There we were, an odd trio at the table adjusting to each other's intimate habits. They slurped their noodles, which irritated me, while my own seemingly OCD behavior perhaps made them feel uncomfortable too, but they were not in a position to criticize. As we ate this traditional comfort food, the conversation naturally focused on their plight and they pondered their future. Bernie Simons is a kind person. The British are such nice people. Oh, has that been your experience working here the last three years? Yes, replied Lai Sook. I've been trying to bring new technology in communications to China while Laisam had been learning from medical professionals and pharmaceutical companies in this country about new approaches to family planning. From the muted and slightly awkward start to their meal, they suddenly launched into a passionate account of what they were doing for their country. They expressed such hope that China would catch up with the rest of the world after the dark years of the Cultural Revolution. Then Su looked at me. I do want to make contact uh, with one particular British person. Who's that? A senior executive at British Telecom. He was no more specific than that. I do not really understand why I was irritated and slightly alarmed. But I advised him that it was really not a good idea to let anyone else know of their whereabouts at the moment. The situation seems so delicate. Why do you want to contact him? He may help. Well, I think you should wait a bit. Wait to see what Bernie Simons comes up with. I said this with a tone of diplomatic authority. Since you are staying at my house, you are under my guidance, I thought. I also wondered... If previously the help between him and the British Telecom Executive had been reciprocal in nature. Perhaps Lysok gained information on the latest telecom technology for China, with the promise of Chinese contracts for BT in return. How long will it be before he gets any answer? Lysok asked more to himself than directly to me, followed by now a rather familiar and irritating sigh legal matters take a long time in this country as in all democracies i could not help adding this rather acidic remark i took the opportunity to explain to them that i would soon need to start my pre-production work at the granada tv offices when i'll be traveling daily to either soho or manchester in mid-november i will be leaving for india To film a documentary about the mapping of India by the British army in the 18th and 19th centuries, they listened with anxious faces of the soon to be abandoned. Lysok started to frown, and his hand almost automatically reached for his cigarettes in his grey trouser pocket. Lysum fell into deep introspection. But behind the glasses, somehow her almond-shaped eyes expressed a kind of quiet determination. I had the feeling she would always find a way out of any difficult situation. I assured them that I would inform Bernie Simons of my movements and find ways to communicate important information or instructions for them while I was away i got up to open the doors to the conservatory to let in some fresh air to both ease the tension and the cigarette smoke they immediately uttered many words of embarrassed gratitude i realized that i really had no idea how important Laisuk and Laisam really were to the chinese authorities their fear had become a barometer for my fear i told them that i would liaise with becky their knees and they could freely use my telephone to contact their family both there and of course their daughter hiding in Tokyo. That afternoon I tried to recover some sort of normality by working on my forthcoming documentary project in the tiny study upstairs next to my bedroom while they remained downstairs in the kitchen conservatory. I tried hard to concentrate but I was so distracted by their presence and found myself wondering about my own role in their lives. Was I their protector, host or friend? At about five in the afternoon, I heard pots and pans clanging and caught a waft of cigarette smoke drifting upstairs. Like a lot of Chinese of their generation, they were used to having their dinner around 6, and I'm sure their regimented life in the party headquarters followed the same pattern. Early dinner, 10.30 curfew, and then bed. I was not surprised at all when her voice came up about 45 minutes later. "Chiefana, Dinner's ready! The literal translation, eat rice now. Hearing this one small phrase of domestic civility and kindness, I again experienced an overwhelming sensation that my life had been taken over. Lai had prepared three dishes and a bowl of white rice to be shared. It was a classic meal of a Chinese family used to eating together. I've been living on my own since coming to the UK as a student, and I have never eaten this way since then, except when going to see my family in Hong Kong and Toronto. It was interesting for me to see that after years of deprivation in her youth, she, the chief cook in the family, did not know how to use the modern gadgets such as rice cooker and the crock pot. Unfortunately, I also found her northern Chinese cooking style very difficult for my palate. They like their pork to be really fatty and the rice overcooked. Apart from the cooking, she also had the unnerving habit of squashing flies with deadly accuracy with her bare hands, always exclaiming that the British flies are dumber. Chinese flies always get away before you can kill them. At the end of our first proper dinner together, I had to speak my mind. We were eating in the conservatory kitchen as I hardly ever used the dining room, which was the small room at the back of the house with glass doors onto the garden. I calmly told Lai that he could smoke in that dining room but not in the rest of the house. He agreed, offering profuse apologies. I took the opportunity of hinting politely that it must cost him a fortune to buy cigarettes. The standard salary for party officials is low, but he told me there was the equivalent of a tax-free shop inside the embassy building where cigarettes could be purchased cheaply. I found myself adopting the tone of parental guidance, telling him that he would find the price of cigarettes in the real world exorbitant. I then delicately mentioned the subject of money. I said I could provide all the food for them while they stayed with me and the money for buses and the tube. With gratitude and embarrassment, they told me that they had a little bit of savings and would be contacting their relatives in Hong Kong if necessary. I gave them a set of keys and told them they could come and go as they pleased. I also made it clear to them that I was an independent person with my own life to lead and own professional work to attend to, and I did not wish to have meals together according to either my schedule or theirs. They looked a bit disappointed and thoughtful. It did feel that after having just got married yesterday, we are already talking about a separation. We could always save your meal for you to eat later. No, please don't even think about doing that as we may not even have the same kind of diet. It is almost unthinkable for their generation of Chinese not to share food or to behave independently of one another while living under the same roof. I had no qualms about insisting on that. I thought it would be for a short period of time anyway. The days that followed were difficult for all three of us. Although thankfully I had to go into the production office of Granada most weekdays to continue preparing for the documentary, I was coming home every evening. They would greet me like all Chinese families do with the phrase, Oh, wei la. you're home, and come into the corridor to take whatever bags I had with me. They even laid out my slippers. I quickly found these gestures of kindness suffocating. I felt like a teenager again, as if my home was not my own. In spite of what I said about not sharing food, they still suggested that I had the nice bowl of soup that they had made and saved up for me. When I opened the fridge, I saw that every single morsel of their daily leftovers had been saved. One day, during some small chit-chat about what they had been doing and whether anybody had rung, I was quietly alarmed to learn that they had not set foot outside the door since arriving at my home a week previously. This was really like a refugee camp for them, a safe house but without guards. Every evening when I looked at the day's newspaper, I was irritated to find all articles about the present situation in China cut out and already filed in their scrapbook together with their declaration. They openly began to wonder why there was no news printed about them, while there was one article about the defection of what they called an infinitely more minor official outside London. I told them that perhaps this was the discretion gained by going through legal channels rather than walking into the police station like the other officials did. I also quietly thought that perhaps they were not as big cheeses as they thought they were. The call from Bernie came about a week after they arrived in my house. He said that the application for political asylum had been lodged at the Home Office and they would call for an interview when they were ready. The excitement in the house was palpable. Every single ring on the telephone was greeted with anxious anticipation. Many of my friends probably wondered why I now answered the phone with a cautious and formal manner. I had not told anyone what was happening, let alone the fact that I had two political refugees wandering around ten feet away from me, with their ears pricked and trying to act discreet. My agent and manager, Erica, was also wondering why I sounded aloof and distant on the phone when discussing the filming and editing schedule for the Granada TV documentary. ''Look, if you're unhappy about the dates or the terms, you have to tell me.'' ''Yes, Erica,'' I replied. I need to think very carefully about the dates of being away from London. Usually, I'm one of the easiest clients my agent has on her books as far as scheduling is concerned since I have no partner or dependents. Last Saturday, when I announced that I was just popping out to the newsagent down the street, Lysok asked me if they could come with me to find a barber for a tidy up so as to be ready for the Home Office interview. I was delighted that Lysum would be getting out of the house as well. Southfields is like a little village at the weekend with all the young families enjoying themselves out in the park and the shops. We three strode down the long straight road both of them wearing their big dark shades. They were shocked to discover that a simple trim from the high street barber would cost five pounds, while at the embassy it cost only five pence. Well, that one might be cheaper, but he probably also shopped you, were my thoughts, wicked but unspoken. While we waited for Lysuk to get his trim, after only reluctantly taking off his dark glasses, Lysam followed me into the newsagents with her still firmly attached to her face. I got my newspaper and some biscuits and I noticed her standing in front of the racks of newspapers. She started picking them up and scanning them quickly, one after another. After a while, my usually friendly Sri Lankan newsagent was looking annoyed and asked her if she was going to buy any of them. Still nothing in them, not buying. And she marched out of the shop quickly. I apologised to the shopkeeper and wanted so much to tell him that she was not my relative. Shortly after that Saturday, there was a phone call from Bernie. He told us the car would fetch Lysuk and Lysam for an interview the next morning. I would be permitted to accompany them in the car up to the point where they would be met at Admiralty House, but no further. He said I was not to worry about their return journey. He did not give much in the way of advice, but just asked me to tell them to take any paperwork they possessed to the interview and that they should tell the truth. When I asked him which department they were going to be interviewed by, he was not very forthcoming, just saying that it was part of the process before anybody could be granted political asylum. The next morning, even I spruced up, thinking that I might somehow be asked at the last minute to participate. I felt nervous watching them scuttling between the dining room and upstairs to the bedroom and bathroom, whispering like students before an exam. About 9am, a a very ordinary looking young man in a suit arrived in a very ordinary looking car. He greeted us without asking our names or checking our identities. We mostly travelled in silence as he was polite but taciturn. We drove along Millbank, passing the old MI5 building and the Labour headquarters and over Westminster Bridge. Entering what felt like the heart of the British establishment. When the car drew up at Admiralty House, the young man turned to me, politely offered his hand, and said, Thanks for accompanying them. That was my cue to get out and get lost. I turned round to Lysuk and Lysum in the back, who looked even more nervous than when we had started and we waved our goodbyes rather like children leaving a parent on the way to school for the first time. The car drove off, and I went back home to wait. When I passed their bedroom, I noticed that for once their door was left ajar, and the red suitcase was lying open on their bed. I did succumb to my curiosity and stepped inside the room. Most noticeable in the big suitcase were about 10 cartons of State Express 555 cigarettes. Looking at these hoarded treasures now, I was struck by the absurdity of that night, driving fast from Maida Vale and thinking I had got a political defector hidden inside the huge red suitcase. I heard the front door being unlocked in the late afternoon. For once, I was the one calling out the greeting, Oh, ni you're home, trying to sound casual. I think it was the first time I observed what a difference a slight smile made to Lai Suk's usually worried and downcast face. With his chubby cheeks and round sensitive eyes, a slight smile invoked the image of what he had been as a child. Sang. A refined literary fellow and a bright, studious last son in his family. I asked them how they managed to get back to Selfie Station. They told me with great relish that they had been so well treated, which included being sent home in a prepaid taxi. It's been a long interview. You both must be starving. I've prepared some dinner. Talk about road reversal no we are fine we were given and dim some lunch and they even ate with us i was stunned any government organization giving asylum applicants lunch appropriate to their ethnicity was unthinkably generous but i wonder was it also worryingly calculated yes We did not get out of the nice room with paintings on the wall and wood panels and the big long table. So dim sum lunch was brought in. We have not had dim sum for months. Very kind. So what did they ask you? Did they indicate any time scale in the application procedures for asylum? They confirmed that the Chinese authorities here are continuously demanding our return and have objected to any foreign government granting us political asylum. I could see fear returning to his face and his brows furrowing again. They said the level of security of staying in your house is sufficient at the moment, and they are satisfied with the procedures our lawyer, Bernard Simons, is setting up. But there will need to be more meetings. You have been interviewed for nearly seven hours. I know that included time for a delicious dim sum lunch, but they still need more interviews? What did you talk about? He was almost offended by my attitude towards the length of this meeting, saying that they were very meticulous people and wrote down every single detail of their background from the moment they became part of the political machine of the post-Mao government. They were also interested in his training as a radio engineer and data technology. They wanted to know all the names of their associates right up to the present day in the Mayday building, in each of their separate departments. They must have had fun translating the names, I suggested. No, one of them speaks fluent Mandarin and the other one can write Chinese too but the handwriting is ugly. What age were these two men? Oh, uh, both in their late twenties or early thirties, I would say. What rank or department do they come from? They did not say, and they only introduced themselves uh, by their first names and we were not given any cards. Charming and polite people. They suggested we tell our daughter and son-in-law to go to the Australian consulate in Tokyo to apply as political refugees while Tiananmen is still hot in the news and at the same time tell the Japanese authorities the situation and apply for an extension of their work visa. Can we call her tonight? Why not the British consulate there? They said it is easier with Australia. Since the British relationship with China is complicated by the negotiation over the impending handover of Hong Kong to China in 1997, so they did not say how likely that your own applications would be successful? No. Did you ask them? Their looks and the silence afterwards made me realise that they thought my query was inappropriate. In spite of, or maybe because of, what they went through in their lives in China, they were still the generation of Chinese that adhered to the values of Confucius. The correctness of social intercourse based on an almost unquestioning respect of government had produced a kind of blinkered obedience to authority very handy for any totalitarian regime. I felt a kind of unease about the start of this process for their lives as defectors. They were not even political refugees, as that status has still to be granted by the British government. They were in limbo. They were stateless and wanted returned by their motherland. Why would they be interviewed by two clever young British officials going out of their way to be hospitable and charming? Although they were high-ranking in their own departments and the head honchos of the building in Maida Vale, they were not in the high political echelons at the main Chinese embassy in Portland Place in central London. Those two clever young men interviewing them would not be the ones that would put a rubber stamp to approve Lysuk and Lysum as political refugees. That, I imagine, would be done by older mandarins in Whitehall, who would simultaneously be weighing up the UK relationship with a powerful and difficult customer, China. By 1989, they had learned the lesson that even their Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, could not handle the small in stature but tougher than Tunstan, Premier Deng Xiaoping. Those two titans clashed in 1982 when Mrs Thatcher went to Beijing to start negotiations on the handover of Hong Kong after 150 years of British colonial rule and the expiry of a lease first drawn up after the Opium Wars. During her visit, she famously tripped down the steps outside the Great Hall of the people. It was not her only slip-up. It was reported that when she tried to brag about the recent British victories she had led in the Falklands War, Premier Deng Xiaoping spat into the spittoon beside him and coolly pointed out that he on the other hand, could just turn off the water supply to Hong Kong. Touché. In this game of high stakes political brinkmanship, my visitors from Maidervale were but tiny pawns. Their future lives now hung in the balance and would be determined by forces unseen. The Visitors from Maid of Ale by Patrick Lau was produced by Mukti Jane Campion and it's a CultureWise production. In the next episode, Patrick prepares to leave his hidden house guests on their own for two months, but not before a showdown over a frozen chicken.